Hey everyone, Adela here from Podcast Brunch Club. So in this episode of the PBC podcast, I was lucky enough to get to sit down and chat with Matt Bodner, who's the host of the Science of Success podcast. We featured one of his podcast episodes in this month's podcast playlist on emotion. The episode we featured was entitled How to Master Emotional Intelligence and Why Your IQ Won't Make You Successful with Dr. Daniel Goleman. You can find the entire playlist at podcastbrunchclub.com emotion. So Matt talks about so many great books and research and podcast episodes in this interview. So I'll link out to them in the show notes, which you can find through your podcast player of choice or by going to podcastbrunchclub.com slash SOS show notes, which is all one word. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, thanks, Matt, so much for joining me on the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. We're really excited to include your episode with Dr. Goldman on the Emotions playlist. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. And, uh, and it's an honor to not only be here, but to also be included as part of Podcast Brunch Club. Thanks. So tell me more about you and what prompted you to start Science of Success. So I kind of have a unique uh, trajectory to becoming a podcaster. By by day, I'm actually an investor. So I invest in and grow uh, companies in kind of the food vertical. So things like farming, restaurants, uh, you know, packaged goods, that kind of stuff. And uh, I've always been really interested in sort of what makes people tick and what, what impacts human behavior. And through uh, a series of kind of random events, ended up uh, being prompted by a friend of mine to start a podcast about all these things. And uh, that was about two and a half years ago, actually three years ago in the fall. And we just kind of stumbled into it, started, started, you know, doing it, interviewing a few people, any professors or neuroscientists or whoever we could kind of get our hands on. And eventually through, I think, sort of a combination of luck and boldness kind of stumbled into more and more interviews with more and more interesting people and, uh, and eventually kind of became successful. And so today, you know, we started out, like I said, about two and a half, three years ago. And today we have over 2 million downloads, uh, listeners in over 100 countries, and the show's really gotten a lot more traction than we ever thought it would get um, kind of initially starting out. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the interview that you did with Dr. Goldman. Um, So he laid out some action steps at the end on how to deal with negative emotions. And I was wondering if you've done any of these and if any of your other guests had had any input or what you've found, because it seems like you're living this, this, these, these action steps all the time. So I'd be really curious to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah. So at the end of every episode of our show, we kind of ask the guest, um, you know, what's kind of one concrete piece of homework or action item that you would give to the listeners so that they can start implementing what we've talked about. And, and obviously in, in Dr. Goldman's episode, that was about sort of how to deal with negative emotions. And it's funny, you know, you talk about emotional intelligence and, and, and in that episode, we talked about the sort of four pillars of that. And the first two pillars are self-awareness and self-management. And the next two pillars are awareness of others and, and relationship management. And I think many people sort of hear emotional intelligence and they think it's how you deal with other people. But the reality is before you can even begin the, the sort of journey of you know, understanding and managing other people's emotions, you have to have the ability to manage and understand your own emotions. Mm. And so dealing with negative emotions is, is, is a huge component of that. And I think there's kind of a couple pieces to the puzzle of dealing of doing that. And this is a journey that I've gone on sort of through the course of the show, actually. And Daniel, uh, Daniel Goldman's interview was a big piece of that for me and kind of helping me 
understand and come to terms with how we should cope with negative emotions. Um, but I think that, you know, t- two of the kind of core pillars of, of dealing with them are one is understanding that negative emotions are unavoidable, right? And, and this idea that we have what, what another guest of mine, Megan Bruneau and then Tal Ben-Shahar both kind of talk about is this idea of emotional perfectionism and the sense that we always feel like we need to be in a positive emotional state. Mm-hmm. And that's actually kind of self-sabotaging and create can create a lot of problems and challenges in our lives. Uh, if, if we, you know, it kind of results in being angry that you're angry or anxious that you're anxious, uh, and, et cetera. And the only way to kind of snap out of that is to realize that it's okay to have negative emotional experiences. And, and as Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar talks about, who, who taught the most popular class in Harvard's history, which was about how to be happy. One of the cornerstones of happiness is accepting that negative emotions are unavoidable. Right. And so that was a key piece for me. And, and, and Dr. Goldman's interview was a, was a cornerstone for that is kind of doing some of the, the emotional work of, of accepting and realizing, understanding that it's okay to have negative emotional experiences. You don't have to constantly avoid them or hide from them or, or wish, pretend that you weren't having them. And, and the other piece of this, that there's the other kind of prong of dealing with negative emotions is this idea that emotions are data and not direction. Right. And so mm. emotions provide us with really valuable insights about what we're feeling, what's sort of triggering us, what we're reacting to, maybe what bothers us, et cetera. Um, and so it's important to listen to that information, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your emotions are correct or that your emotional reaction is correct. And these, these ideas come from another uh, really talented uh, researcher, Dr. Susan David, um, who uh, wrote the book. Uh, I forget the, actually the name of the title of her book, but we interviewed her uh, about a year ago. Really, really interesting conversation. And she's worked with you know financial traders and all kinds of people from all different walks of life. And she shares this idea that we should listen to our emotions, but they don't. They shouldn't necessarily guide where we're going. And so that's kind of the other side of the coin. Is it's okay to have negative emotions, and we can also sort of listen listen to them and use them to provide us with insights. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you know, we should do what they're telling us to do. And so one of the things that Dr. Goldman talks about, and and many of the guests we've interviewed on the show talk about is this idea of self-compassion and having compassion for yourself, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, we, I, there's an analogy that's used a lot in kind of the, the psychology literature that, that talks about our own self-talk and our own dialogue can be so harsh on ourselves, um, especially our expectations about our emotional states. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the way you react to yourself having a stressful situation, you know, dealing with a stressful situation or experiencing negative emotions, think about how you would treat a close friend who came to you with the same challenge or problems or whatever. The, the, the reality is the dialogue that you would have with them, the language you would have with them and the words you would use to kind of interact with them are typically very different from the self-talk you use with yourself when you're dealing with those negative experiences. Yeah. And so how can we develop more self-compassion around kind of accepting and understanding that it's okay to have these negative emotional experiences. That was that was one of the big lessons for me. And that's definitely something I've implemented in my life and spent a lot of time sort of journaling, thinking about, reading about, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it brings up some questions in my head as you were talking. I mean, f- first, I really wonder, and maybe you know, maybe you don't, um, if there's any, there's been any research on whether there's differences with men and women in some of these categories like self-awareness. I'm sure there has, but I don't know. And I don't think any of our guests have kind of dug into the gender gap, but I'm sure if you were to dig around, you could probably find some Yeah, stuff. I'm going to have to look into that because the other thing that I was wondering is, and I'm sure there's been research on this, is how much social media plays into some of these things. 
yeah, social media is a huge negative culprit in a lot of this yeah. stuff. Yeah. And uh, and we've done another a couple other interviews, uh, ones with Dr. Adam Alter, where we kind of went deep into how addictive and dangerous phones are and how it's kind of a it's almost it doubles down on how bad it is, because even within uh, within kind of if you look at the ecosystem of apps and how frequently they're used, the apps that make us the least happy, the most angry, the most frustrated, the most outraged, we spend more time mm-hmm. on those apps than we do on the apps that make us happiest. Right. And, uh, you know, there's there's an old story that when Steve Jobs was still alive, an interviewer asked him, um, you know, oh, your kids must be loving the iPad, right? This is right when the iPad came out. And and Steve Jobs was like, oh, I don't let my kids touch that thing. They're not allowed to use it. Oh my gosh. Right? And and the reality is that these the, the kind of creators of many of these devices don't let their kids use a lot of this technology. And yeah. so, uh, you know, we've had a couple interviews on the show where we've gone deep into how negative phones can be and social media can be. And, and it's it really has a tremendously negative impact on people. And I think if you look at, there's a really good piece in, uh, I think in the Atlantic, maybe like a year ago, and I could probably dig this up and, and send it to you for the show notes. But it was talking about how teenagers today are physically safer than any generation in history. Right. And they're also more depressed and more kind of emotionally unstable than any generation in history. Yeah. And the reality is that's because they spend the vast majority of their time sitting on their phones. Yeah, that's crazy. And just to think that Steve Jobs would not let his kids use the iPad. I mean, to me, that's like one thing that if it's a it's a sort of unintended negative consequence of, of technology. But to me, that says that's almost intended, you know, like it was an intentional thing. And I know that recently, I, I think I read this today or yesterday that Apple iOS 12 is implementing things. And I didn't really do any, I didn't dig too deep into this, but have you heard about this? They're implementing something that helps you kind of monitor your use of the phone. And they're, tr- I think because of this, because they've gotten so much heat for, uh, for their devices being so addictive and sort of creating these these negative consequences that they've implemented something that lets you monitor your use and and I don't know I, I don't know too much about it but it's it's a thing it's a thing that they're even addressing that's really interesting yeah I mean obviously these companies have gotten you know blasted Facebook etc because the reality is they've designed them to be insanely addictive, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's the whole point is that it's designed every little nuance, every shade of color, every placement of a button is designed to make you use it as long as possible. Right. And uh, I, I'm not, I haven't seen that stuff about the latest kind of iOS update, but there's an app that I use that's free that's called Moment. Mm. And it basically just tracks how much you use your phone and gives you kind of daily reports on it. And just having that kind of measurement and that awareness mm-hmm. of it is a great, starter to to becoming more present to wow you know i'm spending like three to four hours a day on my phone maybe i need to cut that down a little bit right and then i mean that even brings up like another point of you know the the whole measurement um uh what's the word everybody's trying to measure everything right we've got all these by itself yeah just biometrics and you know everybody wants to know you know how are my sleeping and and in some ways like i get it, it it can help but I, I kind of feel like maybe it's going to backfire because people will be anxious about how much they're sleeping and then they'll sleep less or they'll be, you know, it could create some positive outcomes, but I can also see some negative outcomes coming from all this measurement of our, you know, of our own stuff, you know, me measuring my own sleep or my own steps or my own flights climbed or whatever, you know? Oh, I think measurements, I think it's really important. And I think that if you look at, 
sort of what creates accountability in people's lives to the results that they want to achieve. Measurement's a core component of that. And we we had an interview a couple, uh, maybe a week or two ago with a, a gentleman named Peter Shallard, where we went really deep into kind of the, what he calls the major social pathology of our time, which is essentially that accountability has kind of evaporated because of the way that we used to live in sort of communities and work with people one-on-one and be, you know, close to each other. And now we, so many people are kind of digital natives that spend all their time working on a computer and don't have uh, the accountability in their lives that they used to and why that's creating so many negative effects for people. And one of the strategies he shared in that interview to kind of talk about how to combat that is measurement. And I think that, you know, I understand kind of the argument about maybe sleep in particular, but I think broadly, if you're not measuring something, it's really, really hard for you to understand whether what you're doing is actually having an impact on that outcome or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just feel like it could be almost another addictive thing that we're so, you know, because it could just be this whole rabbit hole of measuring everything and that it just, it sort of defeats the purpose in the end. And especially in some things, or it creates unintended consequences. Like if I'm constantly stressing about I need to get 10,000 steps in a day. Yeah, I mean, that's great because, you know, I, I'm getting 10,000 steps in a day. But if I'm stressing about it, then it might create an anxiety that I didn't have before, you know? Yeah, I see what you're saying. But I think that I think that those are kind of two separate issues. I think measurement's a vital tool to achieving the goals that you want to achieve in your life. And then if you have anxiety around that measurement, I think that's kind of a separate issue that that I would look at, you know, dealing with or kind of addressing kind of independent of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. It's it's fascinating what technology is bringing. I mean, a lot of great things and a lot of not great things. <laughs> it's only a matter of time before. I mean, I mean, everything's changing so quickly, too. So it's it's hard to keep up. But um. But one of the other things that Dr. Goldman said that I thought was really interesting, and I'd be really curious um, about what you have to think have to say about it, is about the ventilation fallacy. Because you know, at least in my circles, you know, we think <clears throat> that you know venting is a good thing. You just got to get it out because you don't want to keep it in. But what he's saying is that actually venting is just really never a good thing because all it does is continuously reinforce that negative emotion. And, you know, did you, was this surprising to you? Did you, I know you read his book before you talked to him, but was this something that surprised you? Yeah. So that's a conclusion that, that I found really interesting. And, and it's not just, I mean, Dr. Goldman talks about in that interview, but it's actually a finding that's been shared and, and kind of broadly found across psychology, which is basically this idea that venting your anger usually intensifies it and makes it worse. And uh, they did a study kind of one of the study methodologies for looking at this, I think is really funny. They, they reliably know how to create anger in a psychology sort of research setting. And the way that they do it is they have someone draft a sort of a short two to three minute speech about their life dreams and their goals and all this kind of stuff. And then they have somebody else basically who's, who's secretly a, a sort of plant by the researchers, essentially tell them that that's the worst essay they've ever heard that it's terrible and, and give them, you know, essentially brutal criticism that reliably creates anger in kind of a psychology research setting. So they did that to people. And then they had them either uh, punch a punching bag and try to focus their energy on like taking it out on that person. And then they had people do a couple different things, you know, basically saying, should they vent their anger? Should they try to calm down? Should they try to do all these different things? And what they found was the people who tried to vent their anger and take it out on the on, on the other person by vis- like envisioning them when they were punching the punching bag got angrier 
and mm. we're actually more angry. And the way that they measure anger on the secondary piece of it, and there's different studies that have done this differently, but one of the ways, which I think is really funny, is they kind of move to a new experiment where they get to, uh, they they tell them that they have to like taste something, some random food, and it's like either sweet or salty or whatever, but they always get hot sauce. And so they get to pour an amount of hot sauce for the other person in the experiment that just criticized them. Mm. And based on how much hot sauce they pour for this person to, to drink, it's sort of a, a good measurement for how angry they are. And the people who vented like poured like six ounces of hot sauce or something. And the <laughs> and sort of the control group poured like one ounce of hot sauce, right? So it was like a big difference in terms of uh, how much angry people got when they vented instead of actually thinking about, you know, channeling the anger into something else or focusing on other things, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because I heard it and I was thinking, oh, that's surprising. But then I actually thought more about it. And I'm like, actually, no, that's that makes complete sense. Because if I think about the times that I vent, it's not just it's usually not just like I'm and, I, and when I vent, I'm not like taking out anger on somebody, right? I'm just I'm just talking to friends about it and being like getting angry about it, but with friends, right? So just telling people about it. But I then get angry because I'm telling the story. And then it doesn't stop there. It, I go to the next friend and I tell the next friend about the story and I get angry again. And so it's just like this constantly, you know, these this anger just constantly coming up or this frustration or whatever it is that I'm feeling. So, of course, that makes sense. Like, why would you want to live in this sort of negative space over and over again as you're venting? So, yeah, that was it was surprising. But then when I thought about it, not surprising. So I just need to kind of embrace that. I think I think I'm going to really use that and just try not to, to try and either channel it in a different way or like think about why I'm feeling that way and just sort of have an internal dialogue and let it go and rather than just feeling like I have to tell everybody in my life yeah, about it. Yeah, and I think it's also <laughs> it's okay to be angry, right? Like that's part of life. Right. You'll get angry. So it comes back to this idea of accepting accepting negative like we can sort of contextualize that what we were talking about earlier with that specific example. Like both accepting that it's it's okay to be angry sometimes and that's just part of life and then also what you know that can be sort of data but not direction right and so what are you kind of learning about yourself or a, another person in your life or whatever from that experience doesn't mean you need to turn around and scream at them and, and get really mad at them but maybe there's a lesson there that oh you could prepare you know differently for the next time you interact with them or maybe you need to go around them and find a new person to help with this project or whatever right so it's kind of thinking about how we can apply those lessons in the context of anger sort of contextualizes that specifically. Yeah, the the whole idea of like negative emotion is an okay thing is another, I think, aha moment. It's like you're not constantly trying to push it away. It just is what it is. Let it happen and move on rather than like living in it and being anxious about having it in the first place. It's sort of yeah. a downward spiral. T Tal Ben-Shahar says that there's only two kinds of people that don't experience negative emotion psychopaths and the dead <laughs> so right so if you're experiencing negative emotion you're not a psychopath and you're not dead so that's actually a good exactly. thing yeah. <laughs> um and then um the other thing i was going to talk to you about was you know and i this really resonated with me when he talked about how you know a programmer or something but they might be they might have a high iq or they might have a really good uh grasp on programming or whatever it is widget making and then inevitably, because they're very good at it, they end up getting promoted to manage widget makers. And because they don't have the EQ or the emotional intelligence, they can often fail. And 
but so many, I mean, I've had so many experiences with this when I've worked for companies that so many times the good widget makers or the good worker bees get promoted to manage the widget makers. And just because they're a good widget maker doesn't make them a good manager. And so I kind of feel like there's this, I don't know, disconnect on how promotion happens at companies. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah. So this is another topic that that there's a, a pretty meaningful amount of research on. And you know, essentially, the idea is just because a skill set makes you really good at something doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate in any way to a radically different field, right? And so the classic example is the engineer that gets promoted into management and then struggles mightily. Mm-hmm. And uh, companies have started to kind of test and adopt a, a sort of a dual track or a dual ladder approach where there's a career advancement path for people, you know, we'll use engineering because it's such a stark example, but there's kind of a career advancement path for people who are in engineering and they can kind of continue advancing down that engineering ladder. And then there's also sort of a career path for management and those things, you know, the salaries and, and everything kind of scale equivalently, but you're not necessarily trying to force people from an engineering role into a management role and trying to fit kind of a square peg into a round hole, essentially. Yeah. That seems like such a, something that is so needed because, you know, you, you, you know, reward people for being good at what they're good at. Don't take them out of what they're good at and make them manage people who do that thing, you know? Um, And I see that a lot of times, actually, I think about that a lot with education, you know, so many teachers at the elementary and high school level have to go through so many classes on how to teach and pedagogy and, and like they, they actually learn how to teach. But at the, at the university level, our professors are, just really good at the subject, but they some they haven't necessarily learned how to teach. And so sometimes like I've seen that, you know, I mean, it happens in, for all teachers, I'm sure, but but just that that sort of jump from assuming that because somebody's good at their subject means that they can teach that subject. It seems like a huge jump to me. It's a really big leap. And so sometimes you end up with professors who are really great at what they do and they can, you know, publish and, you know, do all the stuff that they're supposed to do to be a tenured professor. But the teaching part of it is they're not so great at, you know, and I think that's, that's kind of a shortfall, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other classic example of that is kind of like a, a chess grandmaster, right? It's actually really, really hard for a chess grandmaster to teach a novice because the concepts that they have in their head that are so almost obvious that they overlook them are kind of the fundamental building blocks that a novice needs to start to learn and develop. And and right. oftentimes the best person to teach you is not the person who's Expert. at the top of their right. game, who's a world champion. It's it's somebody who's one step ahead of you. Right. Because the person one step ahead of you knows exactly where you were and knows exactly what you need to do to get to the step that they are on. Right. And so many times people kind of seek out mentors or teachers or whatever that are way too far ahead of them and and end up applying lessons that aren't really applicable. And I think that's not only in sort of the the context of in-person mentorship, but also more broadly, if you look at kind of reading books or taking advice from people, if you're, if you're taking advice from a book or a website or a blog or whatever of some, you know, let's say say like Elon Musk, for example, like the advice that's what got Elon Musk to where he is right now, from like the last step he was on to the step he's on is not the right advice for you to get from the step you're on to the next step you're on. Right. And so a lot of times we kind of misapply this career context and this career advice, and it ends up 
backfiring or not working or whatever. And I think one of the most effective ways to flip that is to look for people who are one or two steps ahead of you and try to learn from those people and get the the sort of relevant information from them so that you can take the next steps to get where you want to get. I love that. I think that's such a great idea. Yeah. I mean, just learning from from somebody who just learned it and can remember what it was like to be you, like what it was like to be in your position of not knowing, you know, anything about it. Because these, you know, some of these experts, they're just so far removed from that state of not knowing anything that they can't kind of go back in time that far, you know? Yeah, what they take for granted are like things that what seems so, almost so obvious that they even can't conceive of it because it's been subconsciously internalized are the sort of fundamental building blocks that a, that a beginner needs to master and understand and kind of dig into. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it seems like you've spoken to a lot of guests about the topic of emotion. So do you have any favorites that we should go back and listen to from your podcast? Yeah. So, I mean, we've kind of briefly touched on a couple of them. Uh, I would definitely say the the interview with Dr. Susan David, uh, her book was Emotional Agility. I remember the title of it. Um, so, okay. Dr. Susan David, that interview is really, really good. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, that's another one. He's that Harvard professor who, who taught the most popular class at Harvard, uh, kind of about happiness, but really gets into the emotional components of what it takes to be happy. Um, another one, and we, we haven't gotten super deep down this rabbit hole, but um, self-awareness is the first pillar of emotional intelligence. And self-awareness is actually something that came up so frequently as a cornerstone of, of being successful on our show that we sought out uh, an expert in self-awareness. And there's a woman named Dr. Tasha Yurik, who's, who's one of the foremost self-awareness researchers. And we actually interviewed her and talked about how to cultivate self-awareness and how do we develop it and the fact that it's a learnable skill and all of these kind of components. And so I would say, again, coming back to the idea of the four pillars, if you want to be if you want to be emotionally intelligent, the first two pillars are be self-aware and manage your own emotions. And so just starting with, if you just do those two pieces, you'll be like ahead of 80%, maybe 95% of people mm -hmm. already. Um, right. And then the last one I'd recommend is um, we interviewed a woman named Megan Bruneau. And, and that's probably the best conversation we've had on the show about dealing with emotional perfectionism and how to cultivate self-compassion. Great. I will include all of those in the show notes. Um, and before we wrap up, I just have one final question. So I'm trying to ask all of our guests and let me just give you a little bit of background. So at most of our podcast brunch club meetings that happen all over the world, we almost always end up talking about what we're listening to now and trade recommendations. So I want to ask you that question. Do you have any podcast recommendations for the PBC community? So I've been on a huge like audiobook kick recently and I haven't been uh, listening to podcasts as much as I typically do. Um, but I would say if I'm looking at kind of like the all-time classic best favorite podcasts, probably my number one yep. is Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. Okay. Um, yes. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean that that to me is is just there's so much kind of research and work that goes into that, and and the episodes are absolutely riveting. Like start to you know what I mean? Like yeah. three seconds after that he starts talking, you're just like completely sucked into the story, and you end up learning all these really cool things. I'm a huge history buff, so. Um, that, you know, I, I love kind of getting in the weeds about all the different things he talks about. But for me, that is, that's a big one that I really like. And, uh, and probably, probably my favorite or one of my favorite podcasts. Okay. And do you have a good episode to start with? I know that I think they only have three current ones and maybe you have to go into 
paid the subscription ones to get into the back catalog. But. Oh, yeah. this They might be paid episodes. My two favorite series of his, and and this is a little bit misleading because like when you say an episode of Dan Carlin, like an episode is three hours long. So it's right, not right. like <laughs> pop it in on the, on the ride to work. Yeah. Um, but the the two, two my two favorites are uh, Wrath of the Khans, which is all about the Mongols. Okay. And actually, uh, I, I recently read uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, which is a fascinating book about kind of the Mongols and how they kind of came to power and they're really really interesting um civilization and they were actually kind of they, their their reputation and their perception has been really tarnished because they were so their military prowess was so strong that they basically decimated the europeans whenever they would get into a battle with them and so mm. all of these european scholars started writing all of this uh, you know hateful stuff about how the mongols were dumb and evil and bad and it even kind of came into parlance where this the term is not really like appropriate to use anymore. But like, you know, the term mongoloid was kind of described yeah. people that had disabilities and all this kind of stuff. That's a result of the sort of slandering of the Mongols that took place for hundreds of years in, in European historical scholarship. And so that's all essentially BS. And the Mongols were a super advanced society. They were way more advanced than the Europeans in kind of the Middle Ages and uh, really kind of radically open society. They had they had total religious freedom. They adopted ideas from all the cultures that they assimilated. Not to say that they weren't absolutely brutal military tacticians who decimated everybody that they fought against. Right. Um, but the novel, the the sorry, someone's calling me on my computer. All right. <laughs> the, uh, the Mongols were really, really uh, fascinating, interesting people. So Wrath of the Khans, Dan Carlin, that's one. And then uh, I find World War I to be really, really fascinating. And, and yeah. Blueprint for Armageddon, which is his World War I series, is, is riveting. Great. Well, so I want to thank you. This has been really fascinating. And can you just let listeners um, know where they can find more about you and the science of success and Twitter and all that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to go is just successpodcast.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You can sign up for our email list. You can find me, contact me, all that stuff on Twitter. It's at Matt Bodner. That's M-A-T-T-B-O-D-N-A-R. Um, and on the show, on every episode, I give away my email address. And so at the end of the episode, and so if you want to email me, I read and respond to every single listener that emails me. And I'm happy to answer your questions, talk about the show, whatever you want. Yeah, and I can vouch for that because that's how I got in touch with you and you responded. That's right. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure. It's been a great conversation. And thanks for having me on the show and then featuring uh, the Dr. Daniel Goldman episode in Podcast Brunch Club. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Again, if you want to check out any of the episodes or books that Matt recommends, I've posted them in the show notes, which you can find either in your podcast player of choice or by going to podcastbrunchclub.com slash SOS show notes. As usual, if you have any feedback, email me at adela at podcastbrunchclub.com. That's A-D-E-L-A at podcastbrunchclub.com. Also, think about joining an in-person chapter of Podcast Brunch Club. We have over 40 across five continents now. That way you can discuss what you're listening to with other people in your city. Or at least subscribe to the newsletter so you can get the playlist as soon as it's published every month. Stay tuned for the July podcast playlist. The theme will be money. Thanks and happy listening. Listening.